When I left off in part one of the series on Bridgie Clary, it was Friday the 15th of March, 1895, in the morning. Bridgie was slowly regaining her senses and drinking milk, getting her strength back ever so slowly under the watchful gaze of two people, her cousin Joanna and her husband, Michael. By Saturday morning, Bridgie would be dead. Michael would set her alight in the middle of their kitchen, all because he thought her to be a changeling, a creature left by the fairies imitating his wife. The real Bridgie was imprisoned in the Fey realm. To get her back, Michael had to kill the imposter changeling. That's what he claimed. The events of that night are remarkably preserved in the court testimony of those who were unfortunate enough to witness Bridgie's murder. The allegations, misremembered details and truthful recollections are difficult to make sense of, but I'm Zoe Delhunty-Lite, and I'm gonna unravel it for you. If you're interested in pre-1950s true crime, original research, and all things morbid, then please consider subscribing to my little channel, whether you're on Spotify or YouTube. Liking the video and commenting on YouTube makes the algorithm happy, and it makes me happy too. And if you're on Spotify, leaving me a lovely five-star review also really helps to get the word out about my channel to more people. For this video, I did months of research and consulted primary sources, including newspapers from 1895, contemporary court testimony, and special reports from the 19th century. This video contains upsetting accounts of domestic abuse, so if you're not in the right frame of mind to listen to that, then I urge you to watch this video or listen to this at some other time. No video and no type of content is worth damaging your mental health over, and I really do care about every single one of you watching this. It was difficult to research and write about, so just take it easy on yourselves. I'm just an autistic being sharing her special interest with you. So, with that said, it's time to return to Ireland in Ballyvadlia, 1895. Bridgie was feeling well enough by Friday afternoon to reassert herself and return to being the woman she was before her illness. Eager to make sure the priest was paid for the mass he performed, Bridgie asked Michael to dip into their savings. Joanna walked in mid-exchange between the couple and explained what she saw. Quote, I saw a small, flat coffee canister with Michael, and he told me it contained £20. He was standing at his wife's bedside at the time, and he handed her the box. She took the lid off, and I saw the notes in it. She tied the twine round it and gave it to me to put in the box under the bed. Bridgie said, Mike, mind that, you won't know the difference until you're without it. She told me to pull out the box from under the bed, which I did. She told me to put it in the bottom of the box and push it back. The box that Joanna refers to is the old wooden trunk hidden underneath Bridgie's bed that I talked about in the last episode. Bridgie had the initiative to take control at this moment, indicating that she probably controlled the household's finances. She knew where the coffee canister with their savings was, and was smart enough to warn Michael about keeping their savings safe. It seems like she took it upon herself to make sure they spent their savings wisely 
Otherwise, I don't think she would have cautioned Michael about it that much. Remember, Michael had worked in Clonmel for four years, only coming back at the weekends. During this time, Bridgie sold eggs, made dresses, and cared for her elderly parents, so I think she was probably the only one keeping track of the family's finances. When Michael returned home for good, I expect Bridgie continued to be the financially astute one, judging by how she speaks to her husband in this moment. Bridgie was a smart woman. She clearly knew her own mind and was confident enough to assert control over the finances and how they spent their money. I don't know and I don't really care how this must have impacted Michael at the time, but I know that certain people would definitely feel insecure in the face of someone who was so sure of finances and sure enough to tell everyone that they were sure, if that makes sense. Seeing Joanna reminded Bridgie to check whether Joanna had been paid for the milk she brought the previous day. Bridgie turned to Michael and asked him whether Joanna had been paid for the milk, and it was Joanna, not Michael, that stepped in to reply that yes, she had, and she showed Bridgie the shilling she had been paid. Bridgie took the shilling and put it under the bedclothes, and then gave it back to her cousin. To us, this might seem strange, but to Bridgie, it made perfect sense. First, you should know that the milk that Joanna bought Bridgie was the Beastings. Beastings is the term for the first milk that a cow produces after giving birth to a calf. As it's the first milk a calf would drink upon entering the world, Beastings is filled with antibodies to protect against disease, being rich with white blood cells to protect the calf from infection. So, you can imagine that for humans, drinking Beastings is a potent remedy. Despite its value, a shilling is still a high price for the milk that Joanna bought. Perhaps this was a show of wealth from Bridgie, but I don't think it was. I'd wager Bridgie intentionally overestimated the value of the Beastings, to show Joanna how grateful she was for the love and care she had been shown by her cousin over the past week. It's like when you get sick and someone does you a favour, you might go out of your way to do something nice to them to say thank you, and if they won't accept thank you or gifts, you might just try and pay them a little bit extra for something that they got you when you were sick. It's a really common non-verbal act of love and as someone who's autistic and does gift giving and acts of service to prove my love to people, I can really see where Bridgie was coming from here. Angela Bork posits in her book on Bridgie that rubbing the shilling on her thigh, which is what she did when she put it under the bedclothes, was a way to divert the luck from the payment ensuring the luck passed to Bridgie instead of Joanna. It might have been the equivalent to knock on wood, which we have now, which you generally do to prevent bad luck from coming towards you when you say something that might tempt it, such as, the weather's nice today, and then it starts to rain, or, oh my god, I'm so glad we didn't miss that bus, and then you end up missing the bus anyway. I think the true meaning of the shilling rubbing might have been lost to time, because I definitely don't know what it would mean. But if you think you do, and if you're from Ireland and might have grandparents or know some elderly people who might be able to unravel what it means, please do let me know in the comments because I really want to know. It's fog practices like this that I'm really sad that we're losing at the moment, so it's really important to preserve them. So yeah, let me know in the comments. At Bridgie's request, Joanna went to get more milk from her home in Rathkenny, leaving Bridgie alone in the cottage with Michael. Michael had seen the shilling rubbing and wasn't happy about it. 
which will soon become clear. When Friday evening came, the terrifying behaviour of the previous night returned with it. Joanna returned with the milk, and Aunt Mary testified about what happened next. Joanna put the milk on the windowsill to keep it cold, and Bridgie asked for a drink of it. Michael, for some reason, would not let his wife drink the milk she had specifically asked for, saying instead she could take a drink of water. Aunt Mary interjected here, evidently bemused by Michael's denial, and said, quote, What nourishment is a sup of water for the poor creature? Michael did not reply. He took the bottle of milk off of the windowsill and moved it into the kitchen. Bridgie was evidently annoyed by this, as Aunt Mary then said, No matter, Bridgie. Joanna will give you a sup by and by. Bridgie was annoyed at Michael's childish behaviour and could tell he was angry with her, though the reason why escaped her. Bridgie complained to Joanna and said that, quote, If I had Tom Smith and David Hogan, they'd settle what's between me and Mick. Here, I think we can see Michael's paranoia and need for control starting to become even more evident. Instead of doing what his wife wanted, and therefore in his mind appearing subservient to her by just giving her some milk, he decided to make a really petty choice to say she could only have water. It's a absolutely contemptible way to try and exert power over your partner by having this meaningless like power struggle over something so small as milk or water, but it really shows what kind of a person Michael was. He couldn't just let stuff go for the greater good or even for the health of his wife. He had to maintain control in some way. He's really pathetic, and I've seen men like this act before, even nowadays, where they'll take a really small incident and try and use it as a way to like prove that they know better than you or that just like tit for tat. It's just it's pathetic. Anyway, going back to Tom Smith and David Hogan, who Bridgie just mentioned. Tom Smith and David Hogan were Bridgie's childhood friends. Tom had known her almost all of her life. It was probably Bridgie's hope that her two friends could talk some sense into her husband, so the pair were sent for. Tom and David soon arrived and exchanged a few words with Bridgie. When Tom asked her how she was doing, Bridgie said she was middling and that Michael was, and this is a direct quote, making a fairy of her. Tom must have seen Michael loitering in the doorway or something, as he would later know in court testimony that he got the sense that Michael wanted Bridgie to take something. Let's just pause here and think about the situation Bridgie's in. She's still really ill, she's still bedridden, and she just wants some milk that her cousin brought her that she asked for. She knows that she can't reason with Michael at this point, so in an attempt to smooth things over, she calls over her two male friends to talk to him. Here, I think we can see just how frustrated and kind of done with it Bridgie was. The fact that she brought over two men to talk to Michael can't be ignored either. She probably thought he'd listen to the men more than he'd listen to her. It's just really upsetting to see a woman having to play these social games and pander to this man even when she's really sick in bed. She knows the social ways to get around her husband being mad at her. It just really sucks. Tom was right. Michael went back to his wife once David and Tom were there, and Tom noted that Michael held a bottle, which contained something that looked like water. Michael asked Bridgie, quote, Will you take this now, as Tom Smith and David Hogan are here? Tom asked him what was inside the bottle, 
to which Michael replied, Holy water. Bridgie drank the holy water in the name of the Holy Trinity at Michael's insistence, and then, finally, Michael gave her some milk. Sometime during their visit, Tom and David heard Bridgie say, They left me by myself on the road at Skian's yard. Perhaps she was delirious. Perhaps she was referring to some quarrel her and Michael had had earlier. Who knows? Tom and David left the bedroom and went to go and sit in Patrick Boland's bedroom. Bridgie perked up after her childhood friend's visit. Her strength had returned to her and she felt able to get dressed. Here, Michael does tend to his wife quite closely, maybe feeling bad for denying her something as trivial as milk, as he also brings her two petticoats, her navy blue skirt and its matching jacket, her white knitted shawl, her stockings and her shoes. Why he can just apologise to her, I don't know, but this might have been his act of service as a way of affirming that he did care for his wife. After dressing herself, which was no small task in those days due to all the layers women wore, Bridgie sat up at the fire with Aunt Mary, Joanna and Michael. Soon afterwards, Bridgie's three cousins, Patrick, Michael and James Kennedy, arrived to check up on her and see their mother, Aunt Mary, who was keeping a close eye on her niece. When they came in, they were chatting easily and Patrick Kennedy made a point to say, Bridgie, I'm very glad to see you up and shook her hand. News may have worked its way towards them that Bridgie was feeling better, hence their nonchalance when they entered the cottage instead of being worried for their cousin. It doesn't matter how many items of clothing Michael brought her, Bridgie, quite rightly, wasn't thrilled with how her husband had been treating her. She complained to her aunt Mary, saying, quote, I sent Joanna for milk and he would not give me a drop of it, and I never asked for any milk without buying it. Here Bridgie is essentially saying, what's the use of me sending Joanna to buy milk if I don't drink it? Aunt Mary knew Bridgie was exhausted and pissed off. However, she probably also knew that Michael was sleep deprived and chose to console her niece accordingly. Mary said in court that she, quote, told her to hold her tongue and not to be minding him. There would be nothing and she could drink it by and by. This gentle chiding made Bridgie fall quiet as she sat by the fire, her husband on her mind. Michael was fraught at this point, and he would later claim that he hadn't slept in days. Bridgie was improving very slowly, and nothing he was doing was helping. Years of resentment boiled within him. He and Bridgie lived on the remains of a wrath. He was looked down upon by locals. Isolated from his family, gossip circled about his marriage, no children had been born to them. His wife controlled the finances. John said she's a fairy and now the person claiming to be Bridgie was arguing with him about milk and bad-mouthing him. I want to make it very clear that right here, this is not making excuses for Michael at all. In my opinion, he was so pathetic that he put all of his insecurities onto Bridgie's shoulders instead of trying to solve them himself. Instead of approving himself, he chose to take advantage of Bridgie's rare moment of weakness and murdered his strong, smart, ambitious wife. It is Saturday the 16th of March, midnight. The cottage was falling silent. Tom and David had departed, leaving Mary Kennedy sleeping in the main bedroom. Joanna was in the kitchen making tea and cutting bread by candlelight, which she brought to Michael and Bridgie. The couple were still sitting at the fire, 
its orange flames dancing in their eyes. Jam was brought in too, and Joanna poured the tea into their thick blue cups, the steam rising in the cold kitchen. Michael chose this moment to accuse Bridgie of rubbing Joanna's shilling on her leg. Bridgie was furious at this suggestion, saying that, quote, There were no Peshogues about her. Her husband had just accused her of Peshogues, otherwise known as witchcraft. To mention it hours after the event shows that Michael was dwelling on his wife's behaviour, just stewing in his resentment. It may have been this accusation that made Bridgie mention Michael's mother and fairies in a tit-for-tat exchange. Bridgie said to her husband, quote, Your mother used to go with the fairies and that's why you think I'm going with them. Michael was stunned. He asked her, quote, Did my mother tell you that? Bridgie nodded and replied, She did, and she gave two nights with them. Michael was not prepared for Bridgie to accuse his mother of spending time with the fairies. As I mentioned before, this doesn't mean Bridgie literally thought Michael's mother played with fairies for two days. It could have been referring to days when Michael's mother was depressed, or absent from the home, or indicating that she had some secrets of her own. Michael interpreted this as a personal attack, and it kind of was. Bridgie was showing her husband that she was almost at full strength, and wouldn't tolerate accusations of witchcraft. The resentment within Michael grew. The tension between the couple was rising. Patrick Kennedy, feeling tired, went and fell asleep in Bridgie's dad's bedroom along with James Boland, Patrick Boland's brother and Bridgie's uncle. Aunt Mary was still sleeping in Bridgie's bed. Michael, Joanna and Bridgie sat at the kitchen table until about one o'clock in the morning. Joanna and Michael were eating bread and jam and drinking tea, but Bridgie was having trouble eating solid food. Joanna observed that Michael had his hand around Bridgie's neck as though he was fond of her. I don't think he was. I think he knew what was coming. A lot of direct quotes from witness testimony are coming up now. There's no voice acting involved as I hate listening to 999 or 911 calls in videos like this and there's a really similar amount of distress in what you're about to hear. I'm going to deliver it in a monotone voice so that you don't have to hear someone being actually upset, but if you don't want to listen to the account of Bridgie's death, then I'd urge you to skip to the next part now. You can tell us the next part because I tend to fade to black. Joanna saw Bridgie being served three pieces of bread and jam by Michael, which he stated that he wanted her to eat. Each time she raised a piece of bread to her mouth and ate, Michael asked, Are you Bridget Clary, my wife, in the name of God? Bridgie answered in the affirmative twice and ate two bits of bread and jam. The third time she did not answer and refused to eat the final bit of bread and jam. Michael forced it to her mouth, saying, If you will not take it, down it will go. He flung her on the ground, put his knee on her chest, one hand on her throat, and forced the bread and jam into her mouth, yelling, Swallow it. Is it down? Is it down? Bridgie refused to swallow it, so Michael took a burning stick from the fire and threatened to hit her with it if she didn't eat the bread. Joanna tried to intervene and said, quote, Leave her alone. Don't you see it is Bridget in it? She was desperately trying to tell Michael that it was not a fairy, but Bridgie, his wife, that he was attacking. Bridgie turned and called out to Hannah in a mournful tone, Oh, Han, Han. 
Terrified, Joanna tried to escape the cottage to get the police. She asked Michael for the key to the front door, and when he didn't reply, Patrick Kennedy, awoken by the noise, searched for the key in Michael's hung-up coat pocket, but soon realised that Michael had the key in his trouser pocket. Aunt Mary woke up to a roar and someone saying, Mother, Mother, Bridgie is burnt. Aunt Mary ran to the bedroom door and asked, What ails ye? before trying to get a grip on Michael, screaming, What are you doing to the creature? Is it roasting her you are? Michael shoved Aunt Mary hard into the side of the table. Tea spilled over the sides of the blue cups, the bread on the floor. Joanna ran to her mother and pulled her away into the bedroom, slamming the door against the man who was killing her cousin. This account comes directly from Patrick Kennedy. He saw, quote, Mrs. Clary on fire below, and Michael knocking my mother back against the table. I said to Michael, for the love of God, don't burn your wife. Michael said, she was not my wife. She was an old deceiver who was sent in place of his wife, that she was after deceiving him for the last seven or eight days, and deceived the priest today, but she won't deceive anyone any more. As I begin with her, I will finish it with her. We asked him to give us the key and let us home, but he would not give the key to my mother. Aunt Mary opened the bedroom door a little while later, but Michael saw her. He said, quote, If you come out anymore, I'll roast you down, as well as her. Michael caught Bridgie by the head and threw her on the floor again. He stripped her of her clothes and threw oil on her. He set her alight. Bridgie burned. The blaze reached up to the top of the bedroom door. What happened next is mixed up in confused testimony. As his wife burned, Michael screamed out, quote, She is burned now, but God knows I did not mean to do it. I may thank John Dunn for all of it. We know that some of those present tried to save Bridgie and told Michael to stop, but he threatened witnesses with the same treatment if they didn't lie and say Bridgie was missing. Michael said he himself would pretend to be mad. Joanna summoned up the courage to look back into the kitchen. She saw the burnt remains of Bridgie on the floor, lying on a sheet. Bridgie was lying on her face and her legs were turned upwards, as if they had contracted in the burning. Joanna started to cry. Michael snapped, quote, Hold your tongue, Han. It is not Bridgie I am burning. You will soon see her go up in the chimney. Bridgie Clary was dead. It's Saturday the 16th of March. Michael rolled his wife up in a bedsheet, put a sack over her head and left her in the middle of the kitchen floor. He went to the front door, opened it and locked it after him, trapping everyone inside with Bridgie. Michael went and dug a part of the hole where he was going to bury Bridgie. He then returned. Oh God help us, said Aunt Mary. He'll stick us all with his knife. Michael pulled a knife out of his pocket, came up to the closed bedroom door and said, are you there, Patrick Kennedy? He got no answer. Michael said, Well, I'll call your name three times, and if you don't answer me, I'll drive the knife to the handle in through you. Oh, Patrick, Aunt Mary said. Answer him at all events or he'll stick you. So Patrick answered him. Come out here, said Michael. I have the hole nearly made. As I did not drive the devil out through the chimney, I'll drive her out through the door. This might have been a sick attempt at humour. Patrick Kennedy stated that he would go to the churchyard to bury Bridgie beside her mother. Michael replied that he had a hole ready for her elsewhere. Patrick would later testify that he only went with Michael 
because he was scared Michael would kill him if he didn't. Patrick and Michael carried Bridgie's body outside. Michael locked the door on those inside again and said, Now you can't inform where I will put her. It was two o'clock in the morning. They carried Bridgie to the hole. Patrick took a spade and shovel from under a bush nearby. He saw Michael throw Bridgie down partly on her side, before using his foot to press his wife into the dark, damp soil. At five o'clock in the morning, Joanna saw them return. They had been gone about three hours. When they came back, Michael said, Now you can't inform where I did put her, whatever. He then threatened all those inside the house, especially Joanna. He took his knife out of his pocket and said, I'll make ye now take your oath, or I'll drive the knife through ye. Oh, you need not mind drive any knife through us, said Aunt Mary. I'm not in dread of anyone but Hannah, Michael replied. Aunt Mary said, Oh, you need not be in dread of Hannah at all, because neither Hannah or us won't discover on you. For as sure as wherever you put her, God will show to the people where you put her. Joanna made a move to leave the cottage. Before she could make it out the door, she was caught by Michael, who told her to say that she went to prepare Bridgie a drink, and when returning, met Bridgie at the door. He ordered Joanna to say that Bridgie spat at her and went out the door. If questioned, Joanna was to say that she didn't know where Bridgie had gone. Michael said that he would go down towards Clonine and pretend that he was half mad. Joanna fled. Aunt Mary stepped out of the bedroom and saw Michael, quote, scraping the juice of the poor creature off his clothes. Aunt Mary and her sons went home then. Once they were safely inside, Aunt Mary turned to Patrick Kennedy to try and persuade him to go to the police. Quote, Patsy, go down to the police barracks and tell them what you've done, she pled. Oh no, mother, said Patrick, because the people will be calling me a prosecutor. Well, don't mind it, said Aunt Mary, and God will prosecute you. Michael then had the audacity to come to Aunt Mary's house. During his time at the door, I doubt Aunt Mary let him step inside, he kept scraping traces of Bridgie and oil that had burnt her off of his clothes. Aunt Mary said to him, quote, Mike, if you were scraping your clothes and if you cut them off you, God will never let the stains of your wife out of your clothes. Unquote. Mary was not scared of him. She had the balls to tell him that he would never escape what he's done. Oh, Mary, said Michael. She was not my wife, and we'll go tonight to Kylanagrana Fort, and we'll get her riding a grey horse, and we'll cut the ropes, and we'll bring her home. Perhaps he was still acting, sticking to his story, that he believed he had killed a changeling, not his wife. Or perhaps he truly thought that he'd find Bridgie at the fairy fort alive and well. For the next two nights, Michael gathered people to go and search the fairy fort for Bridgie. Having not found Bridgie, and presumably getting suspicious, after two nights, people refused to go with him anymore. Joanna walked past the cottage later on Saturday morning, and saw Michael scraping the end of his light tweed trousers and washing it in water. There were grease-like stains on his clothes, and he said, quote, Oh God, Hannah, there is the substance of poor Bridgie's body. He gathered the ashes from the cottage and the remains of the fire on which his wife had been burned and buried them in a manure heap in the yard. Was he trying to use the ashes of his dead wife as fertiliser? I wouldn't pull it past him, though I doubt it. 
Maybe he doubted that someone would go sifting through manure to find evidence of Bridgie's death. Little did he know Joanna had a formidable memory, and if she couldn't save her cousin, she would make sure she got justice. Saturday afternoon came, and John Dunn decided it was time to check on Bridgie. On the way, he met a man named Leahy, who told him that Bridgie had gone away in the middle of the night. The rumour that Michael had spread evidently had got far. John didn't believe a word of it, and continued on his way to the cottage. There he met Bridgie's dad, Patrick Boland, crying on the doorstep. The following is direct quotes. John asked, "'What ails ye, Paddy?' "'Tis Bridgie gone away,' said Patrick. "'Where did she go to, Paddy?' asked John. "'I don't know,' said Patrick. Michael was standing in the yard, and also said that he didn't know, as he was in bed, when he saw her going out with two men. John Dunn asked, "'Why did you not follow her?' "'It was no use for me,' said Michael. "'Well,' said John, "'come on with me. "'There is no place that I don't know, and we'll make her out.' Michael and John left the cottage to search for Bridgie. John had no idea that they wouldn't find her, at least, not in the way that he expected. They searched the fairy fort at Kylanagranach until John got fed up. They had looked in every nook and cranny. He asked Michael, quote, She is not now in Kylanagranach. We are in the open field now. What must have happened to her? Oh, said Michael, don't ever speak of it. She was burned last night. You vagabond, why did you do it? cried John. She was not my wife. She was too fine to be my wife. She was two inches taller than my wife, Michael replied. John was distraught. Go now and give yourself up to the authorities and to the priest, and get yourself punished or you'll have no living on this earth, he told Michael. I'll cut my throat or do something to myself before tonight, Michael responded, but John was having none of it. Michael finally gave in and said he would tell the priest, but only if John came with him. John had no choice but to say yes. John walked to Drangan with Michael by his side. They met Michael Kennedy on the way there, and the three of them went into the chapel yard. John found Father Ryan and told him Michael needed to speak to him, so Father Ryan ushered Michael in. For the first time since Bridgie had fallen ill... Michael was finally crying. Father Ryan was unsettled by Michael's behaviour, and as he didn't think he was in a fit state of mind to receive the sacrament, he turned him out into the yard again to John. Putting his hand on Michael's back, Father Ryan said, Go on, it is to this man I want to be talking. What's up with Clary? He asked John as Michael wept. He told me he had burned his wife and that more of them had burned her along with him, John replied and went a step further, boasting that he had told Michael that it was a droll story, and if it was John, no one would be able to burn his wife. Michael said, She is burned now, and I am prepared to suffer for it. As soon as Michael and John were out of sight, Father Ryan went to the constabulary barracks, and got the attention of one sergeant, Patrick Egan. The priest told him he should keep Michael under observation as he is, quote, Off his head and suspected that something criminal had occurred. Father Ryan indicated that John might be able to provide further information, and left Egan to deal with it. Michael Clary, John Dunn, and Michael Kennedy walked the long way home with two policemen tailing them. Michael asked John to go and look for Bridgie at the fairy fort that evening, 
to which John replied with a resounding no, calling it moonshine, i.e. nonsense. Michael said that he was sure Bridgie would be there, that it was not his wife that he had burned. Michael Kennedy left John and Michael and went to his mother's home, while Bridgie's husband and John continued to the cottage. On the road, Egan caught up with Michael to question him about the location of his wife. Michael didn't reply. At the cottage, Egan found Patrick Boland weeping, repeatedly crying out that his daughter would come back to him. Egan continued to question Michael and at last he answered, claiming that Bridgie had left the cottage at around midnight when he had been in bed. Michael claimed that he had been without sleep for eight or nine nights due to his wife's illness. Egan left it at that, but the charade didn't stop there. When night fell on Saturday the 16th of March, a number of people went to the nearby Kailanagrana ferry fort. Each man took with him a black-handled knife, probably made of iron, and the police were present. Should Bridgie appear on a grey horse, the black-handled knives were ready to cut her loose from the enchanted steed. Bridgie never arrived. Now the police knew that Bridgie was missing, a huge search was underway to find her. Labourers, boys, policemen and Michael Kennedy were searching lakes, rivers, ponds and fields for any sign of the young woman. On the 21st of March, D.I. Wandsborough found a spade and shovel stained with paraffin lamp oil and he noticed that Michael's clothes and hands had paraffin on them. The shovel bore traces at the hand of black, boggy soil. Wandsborough found an empty paraffin oil can in the house too and a saucepan filled with traces of milk and herbs. Joanna passed the Clary Cottage on Thursday the 21st of March. She saw Michael poking up the ashes that he had buried in the manure. He called to Joanna and said, quote, Hannah, I have got one of poor Bridget's earrings. He held up a single gold earring. It glinted in the sunlight. Then he warned Joanna not to come near his house, as it would draw suspicion to him. Michael was arrested later that day. Bridgie was found on Friday the 22nd of March, 1895. Sergeant Rogers was walking through a swampy bit of field about a quarter of a mile from Bridgie's cottage and had his attention attracted by a ditch surrounded by broken bushes and suspiciously freshly dug earth. A journalist who visited the spot noted that, quote, Many detours had to be made in order to avoid wide drains flooded with the recent rains, even in broad daylight and under the guidance of one who knew the country well, it was with the utmost difficulty that I ultimately arrived at the place where the body was ultimately interred. The old laneway leading to this spot is situated on an evicted farm and has not been used to years. It's a haunting image. An abandoned farm. Black boggy soil. The rain. Bridgie didn't deserve such a burial place. Constable Summers, O'Connor and O'Callaghan came to the spot and helped Sergeant Rogers dig. In a few minutes, the shallow covering of clay was removed and Bridgie was found. The hole in which she was found was only three feet in length, 18 inches deep, with just six inches of soil piled on top of her body. She didn't have the space to be stretched out at her full length. Instead, she was found on her back with her limbs cramped up and her arms crossed over her chest. Bridgie was only wearing a pair of black stockings, and grips to her skin were the burned remains of her chemise. 
Her head was in a sack and an old sodden bedsheet was wrapped around the rest of her body. Constable Summers, who had known Bridgie for three years and had last seen her about a month before, identified Bridgie by her features and said, quote, They were perfect. In her left ear was a single gold earring. It glinted in the sunlight. The coroner's inquest was held in the abandoned farm near where Bridgie was found. No poison was found in her body. Lower parts of her trunk, abdomen, back of the waist and hips were badly burned. Flesh was burned off the hips. The bones and internal organs were visible. Intestines protruded from her burnt stomach. Both hands were burned, with Bridgie's finger bones exposed and charred. There was an abrasion on the inner side of the lip on the right side of her mouth, and the tongue on that side was slightly lacerated. Bridgie must have bit her tongue when Michael forced her to the floor. On opening the neck, the doctors found the tissue was slightly discoloured, the marks of Michael holding her down by the throat. Bridgie's spleen was ruptured, and an effusion of blood was found around her brain. Dr Crean, the very man who had put off seeing her for so long, found that Bridgie died from shock from the burns. It was ruled that Bridgie died either very shortly after the burns were administered, or during the burning. When Bridgie was found, the community was shocked. A journalist spoke to locals reporting that, quote, The horrible crime is still the principal topic of conversation in every circle in this district, and the greatest indignation is expressed on all sides that such an event should have been permitted to occur. Despite the outrage, not one single person attended Bridgie's funeral on the 6th of April. Bridgie's body was unclaimed by her kin and untouched by the church. One journalist wrote of the funeral, quote, It is a remarkable fact that after the inquest, none of the neighbours of the deceased offered to undertake the interment of the remains. The relieving officer of the Union thereupon supplied a rude coffin, and three young fellows, assisted by two policemen, removed the body at nine o'clock at night. One of the lads, with the light afforded by a small lamp, read a portion of the burial service, and the remains of the martyred woman were placed in a grave, beside that occupied by her mother. The Reverend Father Ryan denounced the outrage in the strongest possible terms at Mass last Sunday in Clanine Chapel, and called upon those of his hearers who knew anything of the affair to communicate with the authorities, and it's stated by some people that Michael Clary was jealous of his wife. Bridgie was thus quietly buried outside the churchyard wall in Drangan and Clanine Parish Church, in an unmarked grave beside her beloved mother. The trial of Michael Clary and Bridgie's family was a raucous affair. The crowd at the court hissed and yelled at the prisoners in the streets, and the courthouse was full to the brim with people wanting to see the trial unfold. The prisoners' demeanour in the dock was described as, quote, Unconcerned. They chatted and exchanged pinches of snuff with each other. Patrick Boland asked the judge to let him go home as his sight was failing and said he'd come back any time he was wanted. His request was denied, however. Patrick Boland was allowed to sit down in the witness box as he was old and could only speak in a weak voice. After the first day of testimony, the attitude of the accused changed. It was noted that they made their statements in a suppressed tone of voice, which was altogether inaudible in the public galleries. 
When the statements about burying Bridgie were being made, it was noticed that the other prisoners stood apart from Michael in the dock. Upon being asked if he had any question for the witness, District Inspector Wandsborough, Michael at first did not reply. When pressed, all he would say was, I would not ill-treat my wife. Contemporaries suspected that Michael entirely invented the changeling argument. In a local paper, it was written that, quote, The theory of witchcraft being the cause of the crime is discountenanced in some quarters, it being asserted that jealousy was the motive, and that Clary, in order to avenge some fancied wrong, invented the fairy business. It appeared from the sworn evidence that the missing woman had lived in a house which is built on a fort. This circumstance is believed to have originated from a local idea that the fairies had something to do with the sickness and disappearance. Unquote. Aunt Mary had a cohesive, clear statement, but was denounced by some of the press. Ripon Observer and other conservative newspapers dismissed Mary's testimony as rambling. Yet, in the Irish Examiner, the report states that Quote, Mary Kennedy's statements were looked forward to because she spoke in such detail. The older generations, John Dunn among them, were able to give detailed statements and accounts of the events that had occurred. Their familiarity with oral storytelling and John Dunn's reputation as a shanachie meant they were formidable witnesses indeed. Once Mary was finished testifying... Michael did his best to intimidate her. You did it well, Mary, he said. I did so, Mary replied, unflustered. Michael countered with a smug remark, saying, I hope you will do it in heaven as well. Indeed I will, with the help of God, said Mary. In effect, she was sticking to her story, despite Michael implying that her soul was in danger. Michael had a few outbursts in court, his temper showing, as he was unable to contain himself when witnesses said something he did not like. For example, later, in response to Patrick Boland's statement, Michael yelled out, There is not one word of truth in that, and if I will not get justice here, I will get it in heaven. They are all one lot. They are after doing their best, and her father is the worst to do the like of that on me. If I am going to get justice, I don't care whether I will or not. I will get it in another place. I did not do it. But they did, and burned her. After this outburst, Michael then addressed some inaudible remarks to Patrick, and turning around, he again addressed the court. He said, It is all through their badness and dirt. I did not do it. It is themselves did it, and buried her. Here we see what kind of person Michael really is. A pathetic man who tries to escape accountability, even if it means casting blame on the father of the woman he had murdered. Joanna was a chief witness in the trial and played a critical role in ensuring that Bridgie got justice. Guarded by the police, Joanna spent days calmly and clearly answering questions, revealing what happened inside the small cottage. Multiple journalists reported how impressed they were with her demeanour and her strength of recall. At one point, Joanna even had the balls to address a remark to Michael in the dock. It's not recorded what she said, but Michael responded, I am satisfied whatever way it goes. I am not cowardly like ye. I never laid a finger on her and never would. He then turned to address the other prisoners in the dock and said, It is only her brothers and first cousins could do such a thing as that. Joanna was unfazed by Michael's weak accusations, 
and continued to tell the judge what he had done to her cousin. Judge O'Brien noted that Michael's behaviour surrounding his father's death was a red flag. He announced that, quote, Michael Clary, who was engaged in certain means for the recovery of his wife, appeared to have been so entirely devoid of the ordinary feeling that was found especially to prevail in persons in his rank of life, as he took no interest whatever in his father's death. Not attending his father's wake, and not even being seen to mourn his father, was seen as alarming. Remember how many people Michael was surrounded by for the entirety of this ordeal? Not one of them saw him shed a tear for his dad. He may have compartmentalised the death as he was unable to deal with Bridgie's illness and death at the same time. Or he just might not have been fond of his father. We'll never know. The jury deliberated for 40 minutes and found all prisoners guilty of wounding Bridgie, but strongly recommended that Patrick Boland, Michael Kennedy and Aunt Mary to mercy. On the 13th of July, 1895, Michael Clary changed his plea from not guilty to guilty of manslaughter and was found guilty. He was sentenced to 20 years of penal servitude. During the sentencing, Michael cried and left the dock wringing his hands. Patrick Kennedy, who helped to bury Bridgie, received five years penal servitude. John Dunn, three years in prison. William Kennedy, 18 months in prison. And Patrick Boland and Michael Kennedy got six months in prison each. Aunt Mary was cleared of all charges, and the judge said of her, quote, He would pass no sentence upon the old woman Mary Kennedy. Nature had decreed a sentence upon her not far distant, and he would not abridge the remainder of her life by sending her to jail. After being released from prison, Michael emigrated to Liverpool and then on to Montreal. In 1912, he married Jenny Donnelly in Ontario, Canada. Jenny died in 1917. In 1918, Michael married Nell Granger in Toronto, who died in 1926. Michael died in 1931 in Canada. He had no children. Bridgie remains buried in an unmarked grave beside her mother. Take a moment with me and think about the people in your life. Someone who adores their cats and dogs. Someone who tinkers with their positions to make them uniquely theirs. Someone who will never back down from a fight and speaks their mind. Glints of Bridgie can be seen in all of these people. Bridgie Clary was smart, ambitious, confident, beautiful, and a woman full of love and wit, and she should have lived a long life. Look closely enough at the people you surround yourself with and you can see Bridgie in them. Remember her like I will remember her, not as the woman murdered by her husband, but as the strong, smart, intelligent, compassionate woman she was and the legacy she left behind. Thank you for staying with me for this long. If this is your first time watching me on YouTube or listening to me on Spotify, then I'd appreciate a subscription to my channel or following me on Spotify would also be amazing. If you're on YouTube, feel free to leave a comment below telling me what case you'd like to be covered next and what you think of this one. I've already started to work on my next case, so I'm hoping to have the first episode up in a couple of weeks. YouTube loves engagement and Spotify loves reviews, so that one comment or review of yours 
really helps to get my small channel out there and spread the word. You can follow me at Zoe Dells on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Tumblr, Blue Sky, Twitch, and all manner of things where I post my art. And the sources for this entire case will be listed in the description, and you can also find them on my website, houseofmugwort.com. My website, House of Mugwort, has just launched, and on it you'll find my art, bags, postcards, hard enamel pins, and much more, so if you want to support me even further, you can always go and get something from there. I'll see you next time, folks. Remember, Bridgie.